Here it is! From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, from London, England, where it's almost springtime and almost acting like springtime, which means, you know, gray and cold. It's time for a new feature on the program. It's it's well past time, of course, but this really is. I don't. It's so new. There's not even music or anything else to announce it yet. But it is news of the reckoning. There, you know, there are car shows all the time. But there's um, one starting in Geneva. Actually, it started already. That's how that's that's how up to date we are. And when it started, booth babes are gone from the booth of Sangyong, a South Korean car manufacturer whose products apparently aren't sold where we are. No more booth babes replaced by male and female models dressed in sportswear to promote the line of pickups and cars, this according to Bloomberg. Other car makers, including Toyota and Nissan, have also said they're cutting back on booth babes in Geneva, a potential sea change for an industry that has long pandered to male customers by using attractive women to sell cars. What are you going to get guys and thongs? What you, I, I interrupt the story just to observe that when I was a kid, yes, I worked in a gas station. I know it's hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe. And um, that's where I started reading the trades. We got um, trade magazines of the gas station industry back when there were people in gas stations. And every ad had um, a young lady, an attractive young lady in a swimsuit holding either an oil filter or a can of oil oil additive, like Bardol. Because, you know, the gals know about oil additives. Times have changed, says Sarah Jenkins, a Switzerland-based spokeswoman for Nissan. That company stopped hiring fashion models for shows way last year. It makes more sense to use product specialists because we're selling cars, unquote. Lexus, the luxury brand, confirmed it's dropping models altogether at the Geneva show. Chrysler and Fiat, that's one company, is said to have canceled contracts with several female models over concern about being criticized on hashtag Me Too. They're also instead featuring men as well as women in less flesh-exposing garb than in previous years. This is in sharp contrast with just last year when Alfa Romeo's display had women in little black dresses hovering around its crossover. Alfa Romeo has a crossover. That's like a semi-SUV, ladies and gentlemen. Nearby, a brunette with a beehive hairdo and a bottom-grazing 60s-style dress kicked up her red heels next to a Fiat 500 at Lexus, a woman in an off-the-shoulder burgundy gown was stationed beside a Lexus sedan. A spokesman for the, a spokeswoman, pardon me, for the show said exhibitors are free to choose how they want to present their vehicles. Some may not change tack. In the auto industry, the changing customer base may be responsible for changing the trend. Formula One said it was dropping the hiring of grid girls 
branding the women at skimpy clothes at odds with modern society. The number of women owning cars in the UK jumped 66% through a couple of years ago, almost triple the rise for men. In Germany, women buy about a third of all new vehicles. In France, 37%. Eliminating women as display props isn't new for some car makers like Peugeot. Visitors to the Geneva Auto Show welcomed to the Peugeot booth by male and female hosts whose mission will be to inform them. The group will not convey a degrading image of anyone, neither of women nor of men. Peugeot's rival Renault says it has also banned models for years in Europe, preferring car explainers. It's not cars that explain, not yet, whose appearance didn't matter as long as they were tall enough to be noticed. (laughs) Even Pirelli, the Italian tire maker, famed for its sexy calendars, has modified its approach. Its 2018 booth will have models in black pantsuits rather than skimpy dresses. Lamborghini says it quit draping women around its hurricanes. I guess that's a Lamborghini model. About two years ago, and is busy training male and female hosts to explain the vehicle's features at this year's Geneva Car Show. Goodbye to Booth Babes, ladies and gentlemen. It's The Reckoning. Hello, welcome to the show. There ought to be a moonlight saving time So I could love that man The birdies wake and chime Good morning There ought to be a law in clover time To keep that moon out over time To keep each lover's lane in Till dawning You'd better hurry up Hurry up Hurry up Get busy today You'd better croon a tune Croon a tune To the man up in the moon And here's what I'd say I could love that man of mine Till the birdies wake and chime Good morning Moonlight saving time Thank you.
happy daylight savings time in the United States. It comes to uh, Britain, I think, in a couple of weeks, because, you know, we're, we're, we're so far ahead of the game, aren't we? I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show from London Town, and welcoming to the club the San Francisco Bay Area, which is just discovering something that we who live in New Orleans have known now for several years, which is you've got your sea level rise, you've also got your sinking ground. Together, they mean bye-bye to a lot of low-lying areas. The uh, study regarding the Bay Area was published this week, finding that flooding along San Francisco Bay could become far worse, twice as bad as current models suggest, because much of the bayfront is slipping downward at the same time the global warming is driving ocean levels upward. It's like they're discovering it for the first time, as if they don't follow what's happening in New Orleans. While scientists have known that this one-two punch means seawater will push further inland, exacerbating flooding that is expected to cost billions to remedy, the new study out of UC Berkeley and the University of Arizona is the first to use satellite radar to quantify just how much the sinking land may contribute to the toll. San Francisco International Airport and Treasure Island, as well as Foster City, a community built on landfill, as were the others, and the landfill continues to settle, not select, are dropping as much as three-quarters of an inch a year, according to the research. This comes on top of projections that bayfront water levels will increase by two to six feet by the end of the century. Land subsidence is making the problem that much worse, says a co-author of the paper at UC Berkeley. Prior models of sea level rise have downplayed the impact of the sinking land or estimated it with less precise methods. Flood risk maps prepared by FEMA, communities use those maps to assess their vulnerability to rising water. Those maps don't take into consideration many of the the effects of climate change, much less the role of the sinking land. So they're really good for, I guess, stuffing into the uh, cracks of your doors and uh, windows. So cities, counties, developers, and homebuyers don't always have a full picture of the threats they face, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes, it's, it's just as if every community has to discover the shocking truth for themselves. On a related subject, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. A mix of factors is contributing to an increasing mortality rate of trees. Yes, trees. They die and everything. This particularly applies to trees in the moist tropics, where trees in some areas are dying at about twice the rate that they were 35 years ago. You don't want to be a tree in the tropics. This is according to a far-reaching study examining tree health in the tropical zone that contains South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. Scientists think the trend is bound to continue. No matter how you look at it, trees in the moist tropics will likely die at elevated rates through the end of this century relative to their mortality rates in the past says Nate McDowell of the Energy Department's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. We haven't closed that down yet. That's weird. He's author of a new study 
published in the journal New Phytologist. Not psychologist, phytologist. Not fight clubologist. All right, you get it. There's a host of factors that appear to be driving mortality. The likelihood of those factors occurring is increasing, he says. He headed a team of scientists from more than two dozen institutions around the world. They analyzed several factors affecting trees in moist tropics, like your rising temperatures and your carbon dioxide levels, your drought, your fires, more potent storms, insect infestation, and the abundance of woody vines. Remember him? He used to coach at Ohio State, known as lianas. McDowell's team compiled evidence that showed that nearly all of these drivers are increasing with the rising rate of mortality of trees in the moist tropics. The tree mortality in that area often boils down to two phenomena. Carbon starvation, lack of food. Trees need carbon for food. I I know, it doesn't sound like a very good diet. And hydraulic failure, lack of water. Now, carbon dioxide is going up, of course, with uh, climate change. So you'd seem that trees would flourish. Ironically, the higher temperatures choke off trees' ability to absorb CO2 because they have these tiny pores called stomata, which exist on leaves and needles. They're the channels through which trees absorb CO2 and cool off through evaporation when conditions become, become hot and dry. To conserve moisture, trees close their stomata. I'm sorry, our stomata are closed. Please check back later. That closure means trees can't absorb CO2, and if they're closed for a long enough time, that's carbon starvation. Even with the closure of the stomata, plants still lose water when it's hot, and uh, hydraulic failure, lack of water, poses at least as much threat as carbon starvation. Rising temperatures pull more more moisture out of trees, higher evaporation rates, in turn, Increased fires not only kill trees directly, but the heat generated literally sucks the moisture out of nearby trees that have survived. You don't want your moisture sucked. Finally, in a world of rising temperatures, lianas often outcompete tropical trees for resources like light, water, and nutrients. Those vines are strong enough to break tree limbs, and there are no band-aids for trees. Trees in the moist tropics play especially an important role in Earth's ability to regulate carbon dioxide, absorbing much more CO2 proportionally than all other forests combined. Aside from that, at a uh, shiny new lab in Miami, new corals, new colonies of corals stressed to the edge of death will be revived with hardier algae able to survive the planet's warming oceans and replanted during a new trial to help save the ailing reef just beyond downtown Miami. The hope is the corals will be able, more able, to withstand devastating bleaching events now occurring globally. No, no, no. Corals, not beauty salons, at an unprecedented, not not uh, anchors on Fox, at an unprecedented rate and breathe just enough life into the reef to buy scientists more time to tackle more intractable problems fueled by climate change. It's an ambitious plan, according to fizz.org. Fizz with a P, not with an F. And it's a twist on the expanding strategy to save reefs with new brands or breeds of what some have dubbed super corals. 
If it works in Miami, scientists believe it could be a game changer in rebuilding reefs around the world. Boosting their thermal tolerance is the idea before they get outplanted with the hope we're not just setting up the next set of climate change victims, says the inventor of the uh, system. The challenge is getting the corals in the wild to retain their new hardiness and grow fast enough to make a difference, says uh, a marine biologist, Andrew Baker, who pioneered the stressing technique. But he says the field is a much more complicated situation. Tell me about it. Bleaching occurs when water temperatures rise and the algae that live inside the coral, which photosynthesize and produce food for the corals, instead produce free radicals that are toxic. Those toxic radicals, the corals spit out the algae, starve, and die. Did you know corals can spit? That's why you don't want to hang around... But not always. Some recover and go on to thrive. Coral scientists began identifying those species and used them to to seed nurseries with a growing stockpile of more resilient corals. Staghorn corals, once the most dominant species on Florida's reef, provide an elaborate framework that made it among the most diverse on the planet. About 90% have disappeared. But uh, in a 15-year deal with the Nature Conservancy, They're building gene banks and transplanting more than a million in the Keys and the Caribbean. Corals have been with these algae for hundreds of millions of years. These algae are critical to understanding why coral reefs even exist in the first place, because without them, corals can't survive. The weak link, says this researcher, in the partnership is really the algae. I know the feeling, babe. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news from outside the bubble. Well, you may know a little bit about the attempted genocide of the Rohingya, the Muslim minority in Burma or Myanmar. In case you don't, the United States Holocaust Museum this week revoked a major human rights award given to Aung San Suu Kyi, Myanmar's head of government. The Ili Ili Wiesel Award given to her in 2012 is rescinded based on her refusal to condemn the mass killings of the Muslim Rohingya, Rohingya minority. She'd refused, says the museum, to cooperate with United Nations investigators, promulgated hateful rhetoric against the Rohingya community, and denied access to and cracked down on journalists trying to uncover the scope of the crimes in the state of Rakhine in Burma. She was the first person to receive the award after Elie Wiesel himself. It's given annually to someone chosen for great human rights achievements. The UN human rights chief this week called for a new body tasked with preparing criminal indictments over atrocities committed in Myanmar. He called for an investigation there, where other senior UN officials have said the military is continuing to wage a campaign against the Muslim ethnic group that amounts to ethnic cleansing. He said acts of genocide may have taken place in the Rohingya homeland of Rakhine State. In Dhaka, Bangladesh, where the um, Rohingya have fled to a a fetid, cramped refugee camp. A senior cabinet minister accused Myanmar of obstructing efforts to repatriate the roughly three-quarters of a million refugees 
saying it was unlikely the displaced Muslims would ever return to their homeland. He said the repatriation deal signed between Myanmar and Bangladesh in December would likely fail despite his government's stance that the refugees must eventually go home. I don't believe they can be sent back, he said. You can speculate that very few will return to Burma. Burma will only take a few, and secondly, the refugees will never return if they fear persecution, he says. Rights groups and the UN have warned the conditions for their return are not close to being in place. Refugees living in camps in southeastern Bangladesh have also resisted the idea, fearing they will not be safe if they return. Close to one million refugees from the persecuted minority live in squalid camps in Cox's Bazar, having fled successive waves of violence in Myanmar's westernmost region. The first of them were begin to, scheduled to begin crossing the border in late January, but the process stalled with Myanmar and Bangladesh blaming each other for a lack of preparedness for the undertaking. And by that I mean the effort, not the undertaking. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news of the godly. The Catholic Church in one state in Australia, Victoria, is worth more than $9 billion, making it the most prosperous non-government property owner in the state, much wealthier than it has admitted in evidence in the inquiries into child sexual abuse. A six-month investigation by the Age newspaper in Melbourne has found that the church misled the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, grossly undervaluing its property portfolio, while claiming that increased payments to abuse survivors would require cuts to its social programs. Figures extrapolated from a huge volume of Victorian council data show the church has more than $30 billion in property and other assets throughout Australia. It is the largest non-government property owner by value in the state of Victoria, closest to the largest in Australia, rivaling only giant Westfield, the shopping center people. Church also has extensive non-property assets, including Catholic church insurance and its own internal banks. What could be wrong with those? Only got one guy killed so far, which have total assets of several billion dollars, including more than a billion in Melbourne alone. It has other investments, including in telecommunications and pensions. A church-owned fund manager has more than $1.4 billion under management. Asked specifically for a value of the assets of the church and its associated entities, the communications director of the Melbourne Archdiocese, Shane Healy, said such information was not available. The results from the investigation says the age raised serious new questions about the church's decades-long bid to avoid or minimize compensation payments to abuse survivors. Payments averaged just $35,000 under the compensation scheme established by the then-Archbishop George Pell. He's now running the bank in the Vatican. They like banks. In 2015, the Melbourne Archdiocese paid $30 million for new premium offices. That's three times the total paid in compensation. These figures confirm what we've known, that there is huge inequity between the Catholic Church's wealth and the responses to survivors, says the chief executive of the In Good Faith Foundation, which supports abuse survivors. Healy, 
of the Melbourne Archdiocese said the church's meeting the claims of survivors whose complaints of abuse were upheld were among its highest priorities. He says since that report, the church has paid an extra $17 million to survivors. The AGES investigation, though, calls into question the privileges the church enjoys, including exemptions from nearly all forms of taxation and billions of dollars in government funding to run services. A billion for its schools alone in 2015. The property portfolio includes offices, residences, car parking lots, conference centers, tennis courts, mobile phone towers, and a restaurant. The church is notoriously secretive about and protective of its wealth, says the age. Church leaders have repeatedly publicly underestimated church assets and resisted greater financial accountability. Who wouldn't? The uh, properties disclosed to the Royal Commission investigating historical child sexual abuse in the church. Those properties were valued at historical cost. That is, the amount paid for properties when they were originally acquired, often in the 1800s, or early 1900s. Many presumably would therefore be valued at nothing because they were land grants from the Australian government. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Bless you. You know, the um, among the big stories involving <laughs> President Trump this week, um, a welter, a welter of stories, The way, just the way he likes it, filling the columns and the news holes of the television networks with him, his, his own bad self. So there was um, his decision, apparently impulsive, to uh, accept the invitation of the North Korean president, Kim Jong-un, to meet in person, something no American president has done with the head of North Korea. They said it couldn't be done, and I'm doing it. Um, the loss of his economic adv- chief economic advisor after equally impulsively, apparently, <laughs> the president announced tariffs on aluminum and steel imports into the United States, and most threateningly for the administration and its chief occupant, Stormy Daniels, the porn star who claims that she had an affair with Donald Trump long before he was uh, risibly president in 2006 and 2007. She filed a lawsuit this week challenging what she called a hush statement that she was um, inveigled to sign with supposedly Donald Trump, pseudonym David Dennison on the, uh, in the agreement. She was paid $130,000, which Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, said he got, originally was supposed to be from Trump's own personal account, but uh, and Cohen advanced the money. Apparently, he was never reimbursed by Trump. That's strange. Came from, uh, according to Cohen, a home equity loan he took out, or he had already out. Stormy Daniels claims that because Trump never signed the agreement, she's ne- she's not bound by the hush agreement, as she calls it, or the non-disclosure agreement, which also says she should turn over to, to um, David Dennison all texts and um, other materials possibly videos of an intimate nature and uh, surrender the copyright thereto. So 
like the news itself, we have to keep updating here. Don't know how this became a big thing now. Stormy Daniels, cuter than a bag full of spaniels. She's cheap at twice the price. Like the rich To be buried in her very classy tits Stormy Daniels Didn't need any guides or manuals Quick trip to paradise Paid her for my own account Just for max clarity Something I never did For any school or charity Despite what you may hear There's no similarity I'm in need of no advice She's not a slut I just helped her keep her pie hole shut Stormy Daniels Such a thrill doesn't Doesn't come in granules She's naughty And oh so nice Enemies pretend that it's some kind of sex scandal Acting as if I'm a sort of sleazy sex vandal Just because I have a guy who knows how to handle Lips that could sink my ship It's too much Already babbled to in touch Stormy Daniels Could have messed up all my careful planules Tried so hard to put her on ice No dice Now she's sued Last time she'll See me in the nude Stormy Daniels Once one of the all-time great companions Now Just a way Expensive slice
CPR, Continental Public Radio. This is Said and Done. Said and Done, CPR's hybrid podcast and broadcast that casts a critical eye and a sympathetic ear on the arts and the artsy. I'm Ira Zipkin at CPR Central in Washington. In little more than six months, Harvey Weinstein has gone from a dominant force in Hollywood to a pariah fired by his own company and denounced from the stage of an Oscar show he once called home. Since the wave of charges of sexual abuse got him banished from what's known in show business as polite company, he's been off the media radar screen. Until now. Joining us from his home away from Hollywood, somewhere in Arizona, is Mr. Weinstein, accompanied for this interview by his sex therapist, Dr. Gordon Paley. Welcome to you both. Uh, Ira, uh, let me just say before we get any deeper, uh, Dr. Paley here is not just any sex therapist, obviously. When the time came when I had to admit I had a problem, I had my pick of some of the best therapists in the world. Uh, this man stood out like a superstar in the field. It's just putting that on the record where it belongs. Well, Dr. Bailey, I know yes. that many details of this kind of therapy are subject to privacy restrictions, but... Well, Ira, that's one of the amazing things about Mr. Weinstein here. Even though he came to me as a result of some very bad behavior over a number of years caused by some uh, deep-seated issues, 
He's uh, waived all privacy strictures and, in fact, has put his entire publicity apparatus at our disposal here at the very clinic so we can tell his inspiring story. Well, when you say publicity apparatus, Ira, I don't think it comes as news to your audience that uh, whatever weaknesses I'm now strong enough to say I may have had, I can still spot a terrific story and call attention to it. And uh, I think Dr. Paley and I agree that... uh, my recovery, mm-hmm. which is a process. Very much so. Very much a day-at-a-time experience, much like a life itself. Whatever. That it's an inspiring story that can bring hope to a lot of people who, are in the wake of this whole Me Too thing, may be going through what uh, you might call a Harvey moment. Is that an association you're proud of? Hey, I made the lemons. I might as well push the lemonade. Yeah. Dr. Paley, since mm-hmm. you are free to talk about all this... Was Mr. Weinstein basically going through what we uh, understand to be talk therapy about his issues? Actually, no. Uh, As you may have noticed, uh, Harvey does like to talk. (laughs) So uh, I determined that a much more effective treatment modality would be a period of imposed silence. Almost like the Buddhist monks, then? Yes, but with a powerful daily cocktail of uh, several psychoactive chemicals. Mm. I called it the Harvey Mind Banger. (laughs) Yes, he did, and the staff loved that. Mm. So when you say that it's a day-to-day process, Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't describe this as a cure? I'd put it more in the category of a quite substantial remission in the occurrence of the disturbing behavior. Uh, Boiling it back down into English, Ira, Mm -hmm. during what you might call the final stage of my therapy, they had me in a room seeing holographic projections of Rose McGowan I never once even touched the sash of my bathrobe. Mm. And, and, of course, we tested him on other stimuli with uh, both familiar and novel uh, elements mm. to them. I'd say he's now, under normal circumstances, perfectly capable of conducting a lengthy meeting or meetings with female staff members or actresses while remaining fully clothed at all times. Well, now, Dr. Paley, this, this might be a delicate question. Oh, it might be a delicate question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's the antidepressant talking. Go ahead. But does this therapy just suppress what we might call the arousal response? Is this just a kind of a reverse Viagra? I, I shouldn't handle that one, should I? No, Harvey, thank you. Ira, even if that were the effect, I'm not a urologist. I'm a therapist. Harvey's problem was not a physical one. It was a psychological one. I've got a little bit of a woody right now just from being on the radio, but I'm I'm fine. (laughs) That's good to hear. Mr. Weinstein, you do seem to be out of the movie business for the moment. Where do you go from here? Dr. Paley has agreed to take a leave from his clinic, which I have gifted with a sizable new endowment, uh, to join me on the road in a series of appearances about my story and his therapy. It, it, it's called uh, Harvey and Me, and uh, we start at the Bonnaroo Festival in June. Well, good luck to you both. And for today, that's all that's been said and done on Said and Done. Support came today from the Weinstein Foundation. Making a difference all the same. I'm Ira Zipkin. Join me next time, it's Said and done. This is CPR, public radio for the rest of us. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Sure. Enough said. News of microplastics. 
It's either good news or bad news. They're at the bottom of the food chain. Krill could prove to be a secret weapon in the fight against the growing threat of plastic pollution in the world's oceans, says Agence France Presse, the French news service. New research showed the tiny zooplankton are capable of digesting microplastics before excreting them back into the environment in an even smaller form. This was a uh, accidental discovery at the Australian Antarctic Division's Krill Aquarium, or a Krill, Krill Aquarium. We realized krill could actually break up plastic. It was amazing, the researcher said. It's difficult to know exactly what the implications of this could be. The theory is because plastics in the ocean are already degraded and more fragile, they would be even easier for krill to break up, she said. Maybe not such good news after all. The krill takes uh, microplastics in and digests it through their normal digestive processes to converting the microplastics into nanoplastics. Feeding studies in the past have thought the plastic just passes through, which means any creature that feeds on the krill is taking up microplastics that are then broken up into nanoplastics. The plastics break up into smaller pieces, mainly by physical processes and light exposure. But what we're showing says one researcher talking to the German newspaper Deutsche Welle, is that unfortunately the krill are also breaking it up. That's problematic, says this researcher, because it means little tiny bits of plastic could be accumulating in tissues of ocean animals that we're all eating. So the krill fragmenting plastic is not a solution, but rather an additional problem, the newspaper asks. Researcher says it's not good news at all. News of microplastics, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's, it's the good news and the bad news combined for your listening pleasure. How's that F-35, the world's most expensive airplane, doing? The Pentagon estimates it will cost nearly $16 billion to modernize the fleet of F-35 jets in the next six years. We thought they were modern already. That's why we had them. It's been in production since 2006. Modernization expenses were expected. More than 270 of the jets are currently flying. It's been widely criticized for being too expensive. This will help. This is the first time the $16 billion modernization estimate was made public. $10 billion for software development. $5.4 for deploying the updates and procurement in support of the efforts. Continuous enhancements and improvements will be made to increase capabilities that make the F-35 more lethal and survivable, says Vice Admiral Matthias Winter, the head of the F-35 Joint Program Office. There have been years of cost overruns and delays in the program. The $16 billion represents the outer limit of the modernization costs to bring all the jets to their maximum potential, currently known as Block 4. The Pentagon's uncertain that all of them would necessarily need to undergo this level of modernization. Some guys, you guys can fly, you guys can fly the old ones. No, no, it's fine. Really. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. And now, yo, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Well, who's more secure than the Department of Homeland Security? Apparently, not the Department of Homeland Security. It could do more to keep its information technology systems secure. An agency-wide audit, the DHS's Office of Inspector General concluded that the Department of Homeland Security could protect its information and systems more fully and effectively, like securely. Based on a scale of five possible maturity levels, one ad hoc and five optimized, the DHS Information Security Program rated level three in three of the areas evaluated, shy of the passing grade, which is level four. Oh, but they so close, really. DHS fell short implementing the various configuration settings required to protect systems. <laughs> Continued using unsupported operation systems, like, I guess, Windows 10. Failed to patch critical vulnerabilities quickly. You know, what's the rush? Failed to monitor software licenses on unclassified systems and didn't plan well enough for recovery from service dis- disruption. It's the Department of Homeland Security we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. Didn't plan well enough. 64 systems backed the authority to operate based on government security criteria. Of these, 16 were classified national security systems. 48 were unclassified. This is an improvement over the previous year when 79 unclassified systems were deemed insufficiently protected. The foremost reason that the Department of Homeland Security failed to meet its security goals, according to the report, lack of security talent. I don't know where they're going, these security people, but they're not going to the Department of Homeland Security. News of Inspectors General. So glad they're there. And now, the Apologies of the Week. What's that sound? It's the sound of Alexa laughing. Over the past few days, users with Alexa-enabled devices, this is this little speaker that Amazon makes that uh, sits in your house and listens to you and talks to you. Uh, The Alexa devices have reported, users with Alexa devices have reported hearing strange, unprompted laughter. Amazon responded in a statement saying, we're aware of this and are working to fix it. Alexa laughs without being prompted to wake up. Alexa, don't laugh. People on Twitter and Reddit reported that they thought it was an actual person laughing near them. Many responded to the cackling sounds by unplugging their Alexa-enabled devices. That's a start. Then there's the trash. Amazon has apologized for the laughter. It doesn't sound like this. Oh, oh. Oh, oh. Oh, oh my. That wouldn't be nearly as creepy as Alexa currently sounds. Here's another another way they could Alexa could sound. <laughs> I'm not going to let you do this. Sorry. <clears throat> So 
Alexa sounds like that. I'm buying an Alexa. Former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci apologized to Rachel Maddow, MSNBC's highest rated host, calling his suggestion that she maybe take a suppository after criticism of President Trump, a lighthearted joke that was blown out of proportion. I apologize to Rachel Maddow. That was a lighthearted joke that could be blown out of proportion. She's extremely talented. And while we may disagree on some stuff, she has an important voice in our national discourse. Earlier in the day, he had said that Maddow and other liberals suffered from Trump derangement syndrome. Maddow didn't respond to his apology. She's busy. Oxford University has apologized for asking a female cleaner to remove graffiti stating Happy International Women's Day from one of its colleges. An image posted on Twitter by a professor showed a woman cleaning the steps of Clarendon College, Oxford. White letters spelled out the Women's Day greetings. Four men looked on. She appeared less than pleased. Was Sophie Smith, an associate professor of political theory at Oxford, seeing the woman cleaner scrub out Happy International Women's Day. Other social media users agreed. Her post went viral. Oxford University responded via Twitter saying, We are deeply sorry for this and for offense caused. International Women's Day is hugely important to Oxford. This should not have happened. Associate Professor of Political Theory Sophie Smith said the woman should be given a personal apology as well as good enough pay to live in this city. Yeah, right. A Western North Carolina police officer who resigned after a body camera video shows him hitting and using a taser on a man suspected of jaywalking will face preliminary charges of assault, according to the Buncombe County District Attorney's Office. A judge issued a warrant for Christopher Hinkman's arrest on one count each of assault by strangulation, assault inflicting serious injury, and communicating threats. The mayor of Asheville Esther Mannheimer said the police officer, Hickman, had been taken into custody. It's a a nasty incident that occurs on dash cam video, or uh, I think it's uh, police body cam video, that is what it is. Spokesman for the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation said the FBI has launched an investigation into the incident. Locals expressed their frustration and anger about the incident. Manheimer, the mayor, apologized to the victim in a statement on behalf of the city council, as well as our outrage, she said, of not being informed about the actions of the police officers. We will have accountability, she said, and above all, transparency. And David Byrne apologized for not working with any women on his new album while promoting the new record, The former Talking Heads frontman thanked his collaborators, all of whom were male, according to the BBC. Reactions on Instagram were a bit outraged. So Byrne apologized. This lack of representation is something that is problematic and widespread in our industry. He writes in a post, I regret not hiring and collaborating with women for this album. It's ridiculous. It's not who I am, and it certainly doesn't match how I've worked in the past. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
friend, imagine there's a job, imagine there's an answer, imagine there's a God, imagine I'm a devil, imagine I'm a saint, lazy money, lazy sexy, lazy out of space, no tears are falling from my eyes, I'm keeping all the pain inside, now don't you want to live with me, I'm lazy. How's our friend the Adam doing? Well, a government-commissioned group of experts in Japan concluded this week that a costly underground ice wall, remember that ice wall at Fuk? It's only partially effective in reducing the ever-growing amount of contaminated water at the Fuk plant. Other measures are needed as well. Ever more contaminated water going through the plant, being stored in many cases in tanks on site. So buy tank stocks. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this edition of the show. The program returns next week. At the same time, if you're listening at the same time on the audio device of your choice, and it'll be just like the ice wall working, if you'd agree to join with me then. All righty. Will you? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. The tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile at Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. A reminder, Derek Smalls in Lukewarm Water Live kicks off the world tour with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. No kidding. Saturday, April 14th at the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. Maybe you'd like to be there. I know I would. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long. From London town.